Live from the MacGyver Project Studios in sunny, warm Wisconsin, it's Nick with the Outstanding Authors Podcast. So my last podcast was on January 11th, which was 325 days ago, um, and it just so happens that one of my rules in life is to never go 326 days without doing a podcast. So here I am. Uh, my guest today is Penn Densham, a screenwriter and author. He, along with John Watson, wrote Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, of the 1991 movie with Kevin Costner that I recently featured on my blog, The MacGyver Project. Uh, so mostly today we're going to talk about Robin Hood, uh, but we'll touch on a few other things too. I want to I mention that his book um, is called uh, Riding the Alligator, Strategies for a Career in Screenplay Writing. All right, let's give him a call. Hello. Hey, Penn. Yes, hi. Hey, hey, this is Nick. Hey, how are you, Nick? I'm good. Hey, well, so thanks. what's up, dude? Yeah, thanks for talking to me. I appreciate it. Um, on my blog, I've been um, writing about movies, and I like to talk to people involved when I can. And I just recently um, finished watching Robin Hood for the first time in a while, um, and I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I'd seen it as a kid, and I'd seen it a couple times since then, but um, but it, it had been a while since I had seen it. And so I just uh, thought it would be fun to talk to you a little bit about it. question um how did you first get inspired to create a, a robin hood story here's the deal um my life changed substantially when i had a child and um i as a young person i was eight years old i lost my mother and telling stories um you know one doesn't really understand what the purpose of the story is until you have a child in some ways because then you start to look at why you're telling stories which is to change how people feel about life and hopefully in some cases contribute so that you actually make an effect on the world that your kid will grow up in. And I, I just had this sense that I needed to write a movie uh, that was altruistic. And, I, and John Martin and I have always been attracted to movies that are altruistic. We help champion Backdrop, which is about firemen who are incredibly altruistic heroes. And we, we you know, always liked underdogs, and so we patched up Rocky II for Stallone, and we made a lot of independent shorts that had altruistic elements to them. So I had this vision that I wanted to make some that was about what I call the making of life as opposed to taking of life, which is where instead of killing people and seeing that as heroic, defending people was seen as heroic. And I had grown up in England on the Richard Green Robin Hood, and um, that has always struck me as being the most exciting TV series when you're little and there was not much to watch. Uh, that, that really sort of stayed with me. And I'd also always loved the Errol Flynn, um, just because the whole movie was so buoyant and uh, energetic. And I had this perspective. Uh, I wanted to put a Robin Hood together where it talked about a spoiled brat of a rich man, an absolute asshole who uh, refused his father's request not to go try and fight another man to force him to his religion, and went off anyway, and then getting his ass handed to him, and then coming back and finding his father was dead, and that maybe he wouldn't have been dead if he'd listened to his dad, and he's angry as anything, and 
entirely different religions collaborating instead of killing each other. Um, I had these two objectives. One was to make a film where a rich, spoiled lord ends up being willing to die for the future of his peasants, and where he learns that his enemy, supposedly the people he went off to fight, could be the people who actually gave him the deepest sense of um, support and self-worth. And um, the, the, I took that idea to three different studios, saying I wanted to write it, would they pay me to write it? And they all said, uh, essentially, uh, it, it was one of the stupidest ideas they'd ever heard. No one would see guy, guys with swords running around. And they, eventually, and they essentially saw Robin Hood in tights in their heads as I was talking to them about the vision I had from, for a revisionist, much more fun but humanistically valuable film. And um, I almost gave up, but... Uh, you know, one of the things that happens in life is sometimes we, we creative people were so uh, uncertain sometimes because ideas are so ephemeral while they're still being formed. And one of our assistants, a guy who was very, uh, someone we valued their opinion, um, had said, you know, if you want to start writing that, I'll help you. And his actual sense of support valuing the idea caused me to sit down and start writing it. And my partner, John, started reading the pages. And I wrote a 100-page story in three weeks. Um, and he was reading about a day later and seeing what I was doing. And some of it just felt so hokey to me. And I was like, when I introduced Maid Marian, I had this very large older lady stumble out onto the balcony. And Robin Hood looks out and sees this very grand, old, very large lady. And right. he goes, oh, my God. The, the, the years have been kind to you. Yeah. <laughs> and I go, this is so corny. And then I have this person jump out in a mask and fight him. And I go, this is so corny. He said, no, no, it's cool. I keep going. And so they encouraged me to keep going. And, and what, what, you, what, I, what I know about creativity now, because I write about it sometimes to encourage others, is that you can't judge what you're writing while you're writing it. If you're going to new places, you, you don't have a compass yet. But you can read it later, or other people can read it with you, and if they're what I call story midwives, people helping you give birth, then that can uh, encourage you to keep going and discover really what's inside you. Because I just knew this thing was in me, but I didn't know how it was going to come out. Finished the 100 pages, and um, in that process wrote one sequence which uh, kind of devastated me, which was I had this sudden initiative to write a scene where little John's wife is giving birth and she's breech birthing. And uh, my wife had given birth to our son and it had been an emergency cesarean. And I'd also written uh, and created a, a, a short film about a horse breech birthing, which won all kinds of awards. It's my first drama. And so I, I wrote instinctively the scene where... Um, the, the, the Muslim character, uh, Morgan's character, is able to help bring this child into the world using a cesarean and then reveals that he's done it on horses. Um, and that was a scene that uh, didn't, it, did, it wasn't going to get shot. And I begged um, Kevin Costner to help me get it shot. And he, he had had kids and understood why it might be valuable to shoot it. 
It wasn't put in the first cut of the movie uh, because it wasn't seen as being valuable. And I remember being in an office with all the guys from Warner's and the guys who had helped finance the film from Morgan Creek and saying, well, there's 50% of humanity that's missing from this room. And there wasn't a single woman in it. And I said, you want to make a movie that appeals to both men and women and it's got a romance in it. Having a birth scene, um, you know, is, is the way of saying this movie's not just people physically fighting each other, but it's showing on screen the children that they will be fighting for and their futures. And there was a lot of, um, you're wasting our time kind of comment. But eventually, they let me take it to an editor. We edited the scene and uh, we screened it and everybody thought it'd be thrown out. And what happened was the two heads of Warner Brothers sort of sat up front and matted with each other. And I felt like I was at a jury trial waiting to see if I was going to be hung or not. <laughs> and um, they, they turned around and said, you know, we tested Doc Hollywood last, scene, last week and there was a birth scene in that. And the audience loved it. Put, put this one in. And so I actually got the birth scene in. And that to me uh, made the whole, the, the film whole. Um, and so, you know, for me now, the statement of making a film about life where people are willing to die for other people's futures was all on the story. Now, when John got involved, he took my 100 pages and worked uh, his own magic on it, turned it, formatted and brought all kinds of things into it. When um, Kevin Costner got involved, he asked for certain things to be added. Uh, Kevin Reynolds had ideas. Um, that, you know, radically helped and improved the material. But I had the original vision, and I feel very proud of being able to, you know, realize the movie and then seeing all these other people, you know, lifted up to become what it became. Yeah, and I, I think that the the vision of the kind of the, the making, not taking of life and the humanity really shown through, um, because that's one of the reasons why I really like the movie um, is that... Uh, there's a lot of adventure, but there's also a certain amount of fun and also, but also the humanity and a sense of, of uplifting. And I think the music really helped a lot. Uh, I think the whole soundtrack, not just the main title, but, but, um, throughout the whole, the whole movie is just really good. Well, one, one of the things that was gorgeous was, um, Michael Kamen's score. Uh, he just out, outdid himself. And I, I was in charge of the mix. Uh, which meant that uh, what, what had happened was that Kevin Reynolds had elected to leave the movie at a certain point. This was voluntary on his behalf. Um, and um, so my partner, John, and I took over certain roles as producers, but also we were hands-on filmmakers. We'd won over 60 awards, Oscar nominations. So, and I'd originally wanted to work with Kevin because I thought he was an extraordinary filmmaker and that we had a bond as friends as filmmakers. Um, so when he left, I was, I was in charge of the mix, and Michael came and score would come in, and we would put it up, um, and it, it, it was just an amazing, uh, complete emotional strength to the film. It was, uh, and, you know, sometimes we get scores, and you rip out a stem, you have too much bass, or you have something that's killing the dialogue, so you, you know, you fiddle around elements so you actually clone things and extend them. There was none of that with his material. What I did do, because I'm a tech freak as well as a humanist, I found a thing called Q-Sound. And Q-Sound was a, uh, a, a synthetic um, 
highly developed system where two stereo speakers could be used to create an artificial surround so you felt like the music was all around you. So we put cue sound on Michael's music so that there was the sense that, that, that you were surrounded by the music. And we didn't put it on anything else because uh, it didn't seem right. So we used the ceiling surrounds for most of the effects, the arrows and things like that. But we used the ceiling surrounds and the cue sound for his music to make it seem more uh, enveloping. And um, we used it one other thing, which was when the sheriff was dying, I had them put cue sound on and then take it away as the sheriff died. So it's like his spirit was lifting. And, you know, that's the joy of making movies. You can fool around with this stuff and you can use technology to create emotions if you have the imagination. And the other thing I did in the mix, which is um, I, I, I'll, you know, if you ever hear it again, it'll drive you nuts. But um, I, I am, I'm an incredibly intuitive and empathetic to the feel of a film. And I, I mix a movie with an open uh, mic so that when I see a physicality and an actor reach for something and there's no effort there, or that they've got a loop group creating an energy, but it's, it's not committed, doesn't feel real, I will go down and make that sound. And I have no idea why I know how to make that sound, but it feels right. And the mixing crew, you always rely on them to be your guide. And I even did the freaking horses when uh, <laughs> they were, because the, the, the horse effects we had were just not panicked and desperate. And every element in a film contributes to your overall sense of commitment to the experience. And so uh, I, I worry down to those kind of details. Cool. So yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about some of the some of the, the characters and the the um, uh, plot points. Um, so so you you mentioned a little bit about having the Muslim character Azim um, um, starting the movie with the Crusades. Is that something that was um, kind of part of other variations of the Robin Hood legend, or was that something that you came up with yourself? I really think that was a great way to start the movie and start it in a in a different place and. Um, and I just thought it was very creative how, how it, it kind well, of came together. There's a story to that. There's always a good story to these things. There's so much, so much more fun to have a story about something that actually worked. Yeah. Um, when John and I very first came to Hollywood, I was adopted by Norman Jewison. Uh, we've had a lot of successes in Canada, uh, but we really weren't known in Hollywood. And what we were given was carte blanche because Norman was a high-end guy. So we, would, we took the market testing people to lunch at Universal one time and said, what works? And they said, well, no interesting and different, but nobody knows how to sell it. So you always have to sell things to a studio in terms of other successes. And that always stayed with me. The, 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 essentially, the fear of something new is you won't, you won't succeed and people will blame you. But if you can sell something as a success that's already existed, which is why they love punching a lot of money in the sequel, uh, that takes low risk. Um, I was writing... Uh, with an assistant who then became a writing partner called Jay Roach. And Jay went on to do the um, uh, the Austin Powers movies, and they went on to do some pretty important things uh, in dramas. Um, and Jay introduced me to Joseph Campbell and the mythology uh, where, it, you know, there are certain kind of plot elements that are universal, and Joseph Campbell was the 
professor who analyzed all of the different legends of parable, and he was the person that advised um, George Lucas on Star Wars. Right, right. And so uh, I, I now had that in my head. I also had the idea I wanted to do a rock to it, but I also went and met with a lady who was a Beowulf uh, expert, and I asked her all the things about Beowulf, and the, some of the things from Beowulf, the magic and the witches and things, sort of infected my thinking about Robin Hood. And the, uh, the thing I, I did before setting down to write is I phoned up the person who I uh, knew at Warner Brothers, um, who had been the market testing person, and I said to them, what is it about the, the new Batman that you learned? Um, and they said, and he said, well, what we learned was that people had expected this uh, men in tights kind of Batman, you know, with the kapow and the silly lines and things. And uh, what we did was we sold it as the Dark Knight to deliberately get it away from a perception of what it had been in the past, to, to break the mold of where it had been. And so for me, the idea was then, okay, I'm going to start my story in a Muslim's capital. Um, you're, gonna, you're not going to start in the, in the world that you expect to see. Plus, I'm going to chop up a guy's arm so you're going to see that this is hardcore compared with the other kind of Robin Hood. And what I, I was able to do was, was to not let you know what time you're in almost, because that, you know, we had hostages being taken uh, in modern times as well. And then you discover it's Robin Hood. And what I was also able to do was, now that I knew why Batman had felt successful to Warner Brothers, I constantly mentioned that essentially our Robin Hood was dark like Batman. And so I kept saying Batman over and over <laughs> again. So they were really selling Batman and they succeeded at that. So um, I don't know how much that truly influenced them, but I think it gave them comfort. The only other Robin Hood that I was really familiar with as a kid was the, the, the Disney version where Robin Hood, um, or where uh, Prince John was a... It was a, I guess like a lion, and and the sheriff of Nottingham was a oh, yeah. was a big bear, and um, right, yeah. and, and so was there a conscious decision to not have a Prince John character? I and think have, the, and sheriff have sheriff be the main that villain. space. Yeah. Usually, Prince John is um, uh, 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 kind of like the sheriff in, in, a, in the tellings of this legend. Right. Um, he's he's usually used as the evil person who's the risk that the whole system has to go up against. And I felt that the sheriff was actually fulfilling that role. And so um, I just concentrated on giving my my version of the sheriff, which was expanded exponentially. There was great gifts brought to it by Alan Rickman. Um, and Alan really uh, wanted to, you know, take the sheriff in a way that you wouldn't expect again so that it was fresh for him. And I, 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 I wasn't always on the set. I was running... Uh, my partner John was, as I say, up to his ass in mud and arrows. Um, and I believe he told me that um, some of the lines that were, were, were created by Alan Rickman actually were him working with a female joke writer. Oh, really? So that he could come up with some of them. So yeah. some of them are out, some of them are his. Mm -hmm. and, and they were very memorable. And, and we also edited very carefully... Um, to keep the sheriff 
America as real as possible whilst being incredibly entertaining. And it taught me that audiences have an incredibly elastic acceptance if you keep the right kind of tone. And so a lot of our editing, um, where we were working on smoothing out the film and, and bringing kind of clarity to plot points, one of the things that we know from, that I hate testing with studios, but I love testing to find out where the audience gets lost. And if you, if you test a film, Essentially, what you're looking for is where did we go wrong? Because I know if you, it's like pipes being blocked. If you can figure out where you actually blocked it and undo it so it flows, the audience scores go up and um, your enjoyment of the film goes up because now you're no longer confused. And a really good film looks like someone wrote it overnight because everything looks so simple because it all flows. But getting it to flow can be uh, a challenge, and so testing is a, is a way of doing that. So our testing said that the sheriff improved radically when we edited him because he became more believable, and we cut down on some of the most extreme elements um, and tried to find that blend where we could let him go as much as possible but not pop the bubble of his own creative reality as a character. And, and that, that, to me, was fascinating just to see how you could have a really sincere Robin Hood and a quite uh, beautifully insane sheriff. You know, there were things that I was not, um, you know, uh, in love with. There was elements of the script that also changed that uh, we, we as editing pulled back. We thought that the sheriff was too sexually aggressive at the end. And that was very disturbing. We felt that the movie was supposed to be romantic and it bordered on... Um, slightly sexual violence, and so we pulled that back as much as possible. Um, and that, that was an area that um, was not, our, not in our original scripts, and it was something where uh, there was an element to try and create jeopardy for Marion that, that, that bordered on, on a taste issue. So, you know, things, things grow and change. Um, one of the elements that I enjoyed which got into the long version of it, uh, was why was the sheriff always so crazy? And I wrote a scene uh, which revealed that the witch had actually been the baby handler for the previous sheriff of Nottingham's family and had switched her own baby into the crib right. without them noticing, which is why he was so crazy. <laughs> and I always thought that was a great explanation for that character. Yeah. And there was no uh, room for it in the uh, original cut that went out, but we actually put it in uh, to the, 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 the extended version that came out just so that it, it told the complete story of Robin Hood from the sheriff's side and made him seem a little more unique in a way. Yeah, and actually I, the version that I had watched just recently was that director's cut, and so I saw that scene. Yeah, and I want to ask you about Kevin Costner. Um, for me, I think he's he's awesome in this movie. I mean, he's one of my favorite actors, but in this movie in particular, I think he's just really, like, charming, and but he's also got a little bit of swagger, like the kind of uh, rich boy past that you, you talked about. And, and for me, his the fact that he doesn't have the British accent doesn't bother me at all. I was kind of surprised to see, just read online a little bit about how a lot of people, I guess, gave him, gave him heat for that. But, um, but to me, like, like, it just doesn't didn't really affect the movie at all. And plus, we don't even know how people talked in the 1100s anyway. But no, they, 
certainly wouldn't have talked like uh, an Englishman. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> they were talking in a, in a dialogue that none of us would understand today. Um, and in fact, at that point, they would have probably been, some of them would be talking French mm. um, because England was invaded by the Normans in 1066. And this takes place roughly around the 1100s. So who knows? Right. Um, but the, the, the thing you say is right, is that, um, you know, Kevin just fit the part. Mm-hmm. But the critics, in, in I think the critics sort of see films as a sport. They get bored. Yeah. And when you make a film that's sort of like uh, commercial and it doesn't have a lot of artistic sort of high-end potential like Dances with Wolves, I think they sort of say, well, we were so nice to him there. Let's, you know, not seem like we're kowtowing. Right. And that, that accent thing was pretty much bullshit. Um, yeah. You know, it was, uh, it, it became fashionable to critique him for it. Uh, and I'm always, uh, it, I always enjoy that when Lawrence of Arabia was reviewed by the New York Times critic, they called it a camel opera. <laughs> And that's one of the best films of all time. Yeah. So, and, you know, you, you have to take your lumps in this game. You know, we sort, we sort of think that we're playing golf and that everything should be easy. But I think we're playing American football when you make a movie. And you have to take what, what's coming. You have to get hit in order to run to the other end to get your goal. So, hey, How about the cameo with uh, Sean Connery at the end? Uh... Uh, that was uh, another element that was very important to me. Um, there was a discussion uh, from a certain quarter that maybe John Cleese should write up at the end, and that would be funny and cool. And for me, because I was making a film that had a heartfelt social purpose inside it, uh, that was the worst idea in the world. Because for me, I felt that uh, this film's ethics and morality, if everybody was like laughing up their sleeve at the last minute, that heartfelt effort... Um, wouldn't actually be given the credit it was due. So um, I personally phoned up the head of CAA, uh, Mike Eisner, and <laughs> I said I ended up getting his assistant. Um, <laughs> and, and I said, I desperately need your help. We don't have any more budget. I need Sean Connery. We only need him for one day, and there's no credit, because if we put his name on the movie then everybody would be sitting there through the entire film waiting for the turn-up. So we can't give him a credit. And I got a phone call back the next day. Well, I chatted over with Mike, and he loves the idea, and he read the pages, which was like two pages. And he says it'll, it'll be a million dollars. <laughs> and we were, we, we were already on a budget. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. I've got to tell you, I'm a coward. I don't like taking on you know difficult situations. The only way I can make movies is I'm so passionate I'm willing to take the hit. And so I found myself saying, nope, he can't have any money because the budget's all gone, and he can't have a credit, and I guarantee you this will be a piece of film history, and it will go down in memory as, as being a wonderful thing. And they came back to us, and then they ended up cutting a deal where they actually made a donation to a hospital in Scotland, a charity that Sean um, supported of a quarter of a million dollars. And then he did the movie for one day's work. Cool. That's a great story. You mentioned um, uh, in the beginning about your work on Rocky II. Um, 
that I'm actually from the from Pennsylvania, so not not Philadelphia per se, but um, in the, right. that that part of the state. Um, and I'm a fan of the Rocky movies, and Rocky Two is actually my favorite of the Rockies, um, especially the last thirty minutes, uh, like 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 once he starts. Um, uh, when? 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 Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, right. When yeah. when uh, when uh, that's when we that's when we were given control of the movie. R- really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, John and I, John, John, my partner. I used to shoot our films, and he'd edit them. He won more awards for editing than any other editor in Canada. And we're being making documentaries, we didn't use script. We didn't like spoken narration. We thought that was artificial. Yeah. So we tried to film our movies as experiences. We did a lot of sports movies. And so uh, I got to know Stallone on the making of Fist, where I'd been brought in by Norman Jewison as his guest, uh, because he felt that I was one of the few significant filmmakers in Canada who could actually benefit from being exposed to Hollywood. And I got to know Stallone while Rocky was becoming a success and showed him some of our films. And we got to a place where... Uh, we actually made a documentary on him. And so Stallone realized that we had skills that most people in this kind of commoditized process didn't necessarily have this overview and this ability to bend film with the uh, our editing skills. And so he asked us when uh, he was having a lot of issues trying to resolve Rocky II um, to come in and take over and see what we could do with the footage. And they had a million feet of guys punching each other. And um, so we started looking. Uh, we had four editors working under us, and we also brought in our own key editor, who was a sports action kind of editor. And we started showing them the things that we'd learned over the years that have won us awards and put those things into the way that we structured the film for them and... Um, then obviously everything had to be to Sly's uh, taste, but we were able to uh, take footage that their compartmentalized editors were having issues with and show them how to take elements and make things out of nothing, which is sometimes, you know, the art. You know, sometimes you don't get what you shot and you have to figure out how to make it cool. So, for instance, the end of the original cut of Rocky II, um, Stallone's character, Rocky, uh, get knocked down and the count is like four and he pops up again. And there was no catharsis for that. And we learned over the years that if a film doesn't end with catharsis, you don't get any word of mouth. And, and we called it the orgasm. So we went and found pieces of camera runoff where the cameraman had just literally run speed to see if the camera was working properly. And it was in slow motion and out of focus. And we found pieces of whiz pants where the cameras had slated and then panned over to get to the scene. And we cut out the little blurs and we put all this stuff into the final count where Stallone and um, uh, Apollo Creed are uh, both knocked out almost and both trying to get up. And then we used all the different angles and all the different things to stretch the getting up to the full count of 10. And we also found pieces of... Um, uh, music. It was a guy called Tamita, who I loved. He was electronic, and he had a, a piece of music which was called uh, Flying Saucer Takes Off. We called it a knee tightener because it j- 
just had a dynamic that just kept getting stronger and stronger and strainer and strainer. And so we put that underneath the count to 10. And we, we held Stallone jumping up right to the last second to editing. And it just made a lot of difference to the way that the, the audience felt. They, they, they had, you know, the final relief was when he finally popped up. And that, that worked really well. So we did a lot of things like that. Yeah, can you say a little bit about what you meant by um, how the audience needs uh, catharsis? Well, you know, we, we watch a movie um, to find some kind of payoff. And we, we did a film a zillion years ago where we cut uh, uh, flowers and sunlight. And we were doing these little, you know, sweet little films and decided to cut one to the 1812 Overture and then animated flowers and uh, things to the the explosions and the cannons and the church bells and cut a movie that was five minutes long that people were just blown away by the ending. And that film was blown up to 35 mil film, put in movie theaters and got rounds of applause. And we're going, wait a minute, we're missing something here. Our normal films don't get rounds of applause. Why is this one? And it was because there was such an immense sense of payoff. So we called it the orgasm because that was the easiest way that the resolution of the film, that it's the most emotional part of it comes last, makes you feel like the entire movie was cool. Mm -hmm. And so we applied that to every film we ever did uh, in any way that we could find a way of getting a convergence of emotion to the high peak at the end of the movie. And that way we knew that the audience left the theaters feeling that the best had come and that they had left... Uh, wanting more as opposed to, oh my God, when is this thing going to finish? So I'm fascinated by the biology of watching movies. And what it, what we're really doing when we watch a movie is we're mimicking the actual behaviors of the characters in our heads on our mirror neurons. And if you're, if you're not feeling truthfulness from the actions and the actors, you're not getting anything mirroring. And so... Uh, what people have discovered recently is, and this was way back, I worked with a guy called Marshall McLuhan briefly as a very young guy who was talking about that watch the audience watching a movie and you'll see they're moving their faces with the expression of the characters on the screen, but they're unconscious of doing it. And then recent research has said that we're a societal creature that lives in groups and we need to have the ability to read each other's minds. And the way we do that is that we move our faces microscopically as someone is talking at us and we get empathy from it. And what is actually happening is these microscopic mimic mouth movements are actually hardwired to your pain centers. And that that is what is making us feel for other people. And if you Botox yourself, you feel less and you send less out. And so what, when we say an actor is giving a bad performance, we're really saying we didn't feel anything. And so what we were going back into uh, looking for was those emotional moments that you unconsciously would be responding to, where Adrian would be, her anguish would make your unconscious mirror neurons fire off. And, that, and that's not something one can put in a book or uh, put a, uh, a formula together for it. And it's where the art meets the, the road. And I've learned from society, I made a movie called Mal Flanders where I had the privilege of directing Robin Wright, who's extraordinary. And you sit and you feel. And if you don't 
feel as a director that words are real, that they're really touching you, you've got to ask for another take. And uh, because I know if I didn't feel it, it's not going to be on the screen. And the last question, um, what are you doing now? Are there any projects you're working on? Yeah, I have, um, you know, I, I find that um, there are, I have a number of scripts which I think are commercial, but they don't call me as much as two specific ones. And the, the process I've learned from is that I wrote Robin Hood when I was told it was a waste of time. I wrote Mosslanders um, on spec as well, which means that I did it because I needed to write it, not because I thought I was necessarily going to get the movie made. And I got it made. I wrote a movie on Houdini uh, after struggling with trying to find someone else to write it for years, and they realized I'm the person who should write it. Um, and that got made. What I've learned is the films that I write are passion that don't necessarily fit a formula, but that come out of some deep need to create something, often with characters who have no mothers, because I lost my mother when I was eight, and that seems to be some part of that reflective process. Those are deeper, more intricate, more attractive films to um, film stars because they've got much more music in them that they can hang on and play and use themselves like an instrument. Cool. Well, good, good luck with that. And yeah, I appreciate your talking to me. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you, Nick. Good question. You know, I, I value chatting about it. As I said, there's more than me putting yeah. stuff into this, but um, you know, it, it's fun to, he- to see that it's still you know, stands up. That's a joyful thing. Yeah, and actually, I was just um, uh, taking a look on, on Twitter the other day just to see if people were, how many people were talking about it, and apparently it's on um, United Kingdom Netflix, and so pretty much every day wow. there's, yeah. pretty much every day there's comments about it, people saying, oh, I love this movie, what a great movie, so yeah, people are still still watching and enjoying it. Too. one and, other thing we yeah. didn't touch on at all, Nick, and that is I wrote a book on screenplay writing. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I had um, had had seen that you had had written one. I haven't read it, but I did see that you had written one. Well, it it it's again, it's a from the heart attempt to encourage yeah. people to write from their voice, as opposed to um, trying to find a formula that you try and write to a prescription. Um, my my biggest thing is I have experience. I'm not smarter. It's just, uh, and Einstein said the same thing. You know, it's not that I'm smarter than other people. I just stay at things longer. And if you stay at things long enough, you kind of get perspective. And um, I wanted to write a book that was the antidote to all the books saying you must have this here and you must do that. I want to write a book that actually talked about the way creativity really works, which is it's an incoherent jumble and it comes out in pieces and you get elements, and you probably writing your book found the same thing. You get an inspiration. You don't even know what the answer is yet, but you know it's going to be there. And then you have to overcome the self-doubt. So I wrote a book, and it's, um, it's sort of a quasi-bestseller. But my, my hope is, and if you can mention it, um, yeah. you know, it's got five, five stars on, on Amazon. Uh, it, it's really to try and help people who are creative and vulnerable. Um, to see that they're not alone, that we're part of a community of people that think differently. We're kind of outcasts in a way. Um, and we need to encourage each other so that we can take the risks and the jumps to do those creative things. And if people like me don't make that effort, then you're going to think that you, that I just sit down and write it perfectly. And you're the poor idiot that writes with all these different problems in it and has to solve them. And 
that ain't true. It ain't fair. <laughs> you can bet it, it's called writing the alligator. Yeah. Uh, you know, strategies for career and screenplay writing and not getting eaten. And I also have 12 other major writers, each write a small chapter, so that mine wasn't the only voice. Because my point was that we're all different and we're all special. We all need to be encouraged. Yeah, and I will definitely check check the book out myself. It sounds sounds really good. Um, so yeah, thanks again. Thank you. Good chatting, Nick. All right, you too. Cheers. Right, bye bye. So thanks to Penn for joining me today. Once again, his book is Riding the Alligator: Strategies for a Career in Screenplay Writing. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at sweeto37 at gmail dot com. I'm on Twitter at Project MacGyver, and my blog is. The MacGyver Project. Blogspot. Com. Thank you for listening.